0: Amen, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, let's bow together in a word of prayer as we continue today, Hebrews chapter 4, let's pray, Lord, we come before you this morning as a people who need your help, we need it every day, Lord. We need it to the end of our life. We thank you, Lord, that you are our, great, our, you are our great high priest, that you've done everything that you had to do and needed to do for our complete and total salvation. And yet, Lord, you left us here to live a life, a Christian life, but a life of struggling, a life of sometimes suffering, a life of trials, a life of testing. But I pray, Lord, in all these things, it would only prove that we are genuine, that we know you as our Lord and Savior, and that you know us, and that every trial proves that that's the case. Lord, I pray this morning that you would teach us from the Word of God how we can just continue to come to you, our great High Priest, and that we can experience the help that we need when we need it by the one who can give it and we praise you lord help me this morning as your servant to preach the word of god help your people to listen and hear to apply it and to use it in their life every day and i pray this in christ's name amen hebrews chapter 4 we're looking at the only unique high priest the second part i'm looking at and i left off last time mentioning that really this comes out of a context of talking about the Word of God in the sense that the Word of God, you heard many messages about the Word of God in verse number 12, for example, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. You heard that passage in, in mostly a favorable light. But the only problem is that passage is right in the context of the Word of God being a judge. In fact, it's the terror of the Word of God that he is warning the people about. The reason for that is because there is no escape when it comes to the Word of God. It can cut through all our defenses it can cut through all our smoke screen it can cut right to the innermost thoughts of our heart our intentions everything there's nothing that is that god can't judge by the word of god and he's going to do that someday so god almighty is perfectly aware that and really can deal with us not according to what we appear to be but according to what we really are and he knows what we really are. Verse number 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So that's the terror of the word of God. And that is to those who disbelieve. Those who are in the state of disbelief. And, and so that's something that should come to them with great force. But... In that context, the next thing he does is he speaks to those who are believers but who are struggling in their belief. They're struggling to continue because of things going on around them. But still, nonetheless, it's good news, brethren, to those who trust God, trust His promise and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they will enter into God's rest. So instead, for them... The Word of God is not a terror, but we see in this passage here that we have a merciful high priest who is for us, interceding on our behalf, helping us to hold fast our profession and our confession. And the reason for that is because we are weak, we are frail, we are prone to wander, We have remaining corruption and dwelling sin in which we are easily tempted. So see, once we are cleansed of our sin and we start down the road on our Christian pilgrimage, how is it possible to find strength to continue? When sometimes you and I know very well we don't always sense that we can do it. We can finish the race. There's too many variables going on. We can't handle life. Life's too big. Problems are too complex. And we realize, man, I feel like I'm getting crushed. That's the point. The point is, you have a high priest. You have someone to come to your aid much stronger than we are. To give you assistance. In other words, we can continue to press on in our pilgrimage. Because of the four essentials of Christ's priesthood. Today I will like to examine at least the second of the four. The first one, remember, was we can continue to press on in our pilgrimage because Jesus is our victorious high priest. Verse 14, and this morning. We can continue to press on in our pilgrimage because Jesus is our compassionate high priest. Now, these passages this morning really should be a great source of encouragement to you and I, to those who believe, to those who know Christ. And the reason why is because Jesus knows exactly the way you feel. Dressing that word, feel. He knows the pressures and testings of life in this godless world. He knows very well those things. He knows how to help you and I in the moment of temptation. He knows how to do that. Matter of fact, he knows when we don't know. But we come to him for that help. And he provides what we need. Why should we come to Him? Well, we know that He helps us in our moments of temptations. And there are really four apparent reasons. The first one being, in verse number 15, the first one is that Jesus, our great high priest, is deeply concerned about our weaknesses. Look what it says. For we do not, verse 15, excuse me, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with Our weaknesses. Now that's incredibly encouraging to me. And it stresses that that word, our weaknesses. In fact, the very word there, sympathize, means to be affected with the same feelings as another. It means to feel for. To be touched with the feelings of another. That's the the word. That's what this word sympathize means. In this word there is a sense. The affections are inwardly moved by what one sees. What one understands. Or what one hears from someone else as far as their need is concerned. So, during our sufferings, during our trials... God is able to empathize with us. In fact, if we were to trace this particular word through our, out our Bibles, we would find, that almost in every case, that the feelings are affected. Just a few examples for you and I, just to get the sense of it. You remember when the sun... The prodigal son left the father. Remember that that story? And that's a very popular story. Well, the compassion on his son, his were son, to no longer be able to live on his own. And his son realizes his circumstances and comes back to the father. And this is what the scripture says in Luke chapter 15. And he got up, the father, and he came to his father. The son came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And then it says... Felt compassion. There it is. He felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, this son, we know the son squandered all his wealth, left his father in, in a very bad way. And yet, when the father sees him coming back, he feels compassion. He is moved in his spirit and his soul to do something. And then there's a passage in Luke chapter 10 where the man who's left for dead on the side of the road, remember that man? Uh, He was unable to help himself anymore, beat so bad. And the Bible says, And a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And that compassion moved him to dress his wounds, to put him on his donkey, to take him, get him a place, and anything he couldn't do for him at the moment, he would come back and he, any kind of fun things, uh, expenses that he he uh, he had, he would, the, the man would pay it later on. He he did something. See, it moved him to do something. This is this is the sense of this word. And then in Matthew chapter three, where the Lord Himself has compassion on His lost people, where it says. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion on them. Why? Because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. So he understood their spiritual condition. He saw that, that they were wandering all over the place. They weren't being guided at all in any way, in a good way. And so the Lord felt compassion on them. And, of course, what does he do for them? He dies for them. He becomes their great shepherd. That's what he does in that context of Scripture. And, and then, of course, we, we know the rest of the story. So, see, Jesus is inwardly moved by our weaknesses. When we have a want of strength and when we sense our infirmities and our disabilities. And the word is actually used in all kinds of ways in Scripture, this word weaknesses, it's used of bodily weaknesses. In fact, uh, the weaknesses and frailties of our own body, our own health. It's like when Paul told Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Have you ever felt like that? physically to have those kind of physical elements what do we do with that the word is used in that sense the word is also used in the weakness of the soul in other words when the soul is deficient in strength and doesn't have the capacity or or to do something to understand something To do things because of lack of human wisdom or a lack of skill in speaking or a lack of management of people or to restrain the corrupt desires and the various kinds of proclivity to sin that we have and we feel our weakness when we are tempted and fall into the sin. We feel incredibly weak. Like what went wrong, right? Don't you feel that way? And so the Bible is saying here that the Lord understands that kind of weakness. And then, of course, there is the weakness of spirit, in the sense which we the struggles spiritually that lead to doubt and to lead that lead to despair and that lead to disobedience towards God, that lead to really lovelessness towards others, that lead to a selfish preoccupation of one's own desires. And that's it, and when we are led in that way, God understands those weaknesses too. In fact, if you look in your Bible in chapter five and verse number two, it says this: He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses that's the high priest in the old testament he was He understood his weaknesses, so therefore was able to minister to people because he understood. The weak, those weaknesses, and so the Lord is saying to us, "Listen, I understand those weaknesses. I feel compassion on you when you experience those kind of weaknesses." Now, why does He feel inwardly moved? Because a second reason Jesus is able to help us is in verse number fifteen, also of chapter four. It says this that Jesus, our, uh, our high priest, understands us, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. In verse 15, that Jesus in his perfect humanity is familiar with all our needs, all our concerns. He's familiar with temptations and our problems. He's familiar with all those things. So here is one great confirmation Of Jesus' humanity. He was tempted. And not only that, but tempted by every means, it says here, by all instruments, by from all directions, as we are, as we right now in our life experience every day. This is not foreign to the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows exactly what you and I are going through. So here is the great difference that separates Jesus from all other high priests. In verse number 15, he did that yet without sin. Without sin. He was tempted without succumbing to temptation. Now, that does not mean that he experienced every individual temptation we do. He did not experience really the specific temptations of peculiar to women or married people or even the elderly. See, it can be argued though that far from being less than ours, Christ's temptation was even greater because he had certain powers and abilities which we do not possess that only added to his stress and exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptation, to the assaults of Satan himself. Therefore, Jesus is aware of our needs because he experienced the f- to the full the pressures, the testings of life in this skyless world without giving in. Because some people will say, well, he was Jesus. He was God. That's why he didn't succumb. He didn't sin. But that's, that's not the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture is that he felt the full brunt of temptation. We don't feel the full brunt of temptation and the power of it. The reason why? is we give in way too soon, right? See, Jesus didn't give in. That's the point. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this on this point. A silly idea, he says, is, is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army... By fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour from then. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life of always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent... What temptation really means. See, Jesus in another way was tempted without sin and he went the full 16 rounds and never gave in. He was still standing. See, that's our Lord. No one could have done what he had done. That's why we're to put sin to death Because we can't do it on our own, but we have a high priest that can enable us to do it. See, that's the strength that we receive. And the Lord did that not for himself, but for us. Let me just say a, a few things about temptation. The term tempted can be taken in several different ways. Remember, to be tempted by someone or something is not sin. It is merely a trial, which of course may have a positive or a negative effect depending on how long you bear with it. In a good sense, it could mean to go through a trial or to go to, through a test for the purpose of uh, ascertaining quality or what one thinks or how one will behave themselves. That's in a good sense, but in a bad sense, and that's probably the way that we understand it the best way, and the, the way the scripture describes it, at least for us, it's one of that's malicious and crafty it's It's when one is is put to the proof in his feelings and his judgments in the, in other words. To try or to test one's faith or one's virtuous character or to be enticed into one's desire for sin or to ultimately be tempted by the devil. So when we consider temptation, we have to consider it also in relation to sin. And, re- and the reason for that is there's two sources of sin. There is the indwelling sin the Bible is clear about teaching us this that's probably the greatest source of temptation for sinners and that's the the inner weakness to be tempted or lured away from the path that we ought to be going on it is it's the principle of sin that works within us that paul talks about as the epistle of james informs us but each one is tempted when he is carried away remember and what enticed by his own lusts you think that uh, that's a problem that you and I have in our heart is that we have this remaining and dwelling sin. And so this sin will move us to lust or passion after something that is really something we shouldn't be uh, being drawn to anymore as as believers. But nonetheless, we are because we are still in the flesh. And so therefore, the Bible says, listen, you're going to be carried away and you're going to be enticed. In your own heart, it's already there. And then when lust has conceived, it says in James, it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth to death. And when sin takes place, destruction and havoc take place, right? It destroys people's lives, sin. It shatters it. And matter of fact, sometimes until it's unrepairable. A second source of sin is the result from temptation. In other words, of the depraved intention of the tempter that Satan has and his demons have no uh, goodwill towards you. They want to implement what's in your heart as to the lust of sin and present opportunities of temptation to you and I to lure us away from what God really wants us to do to do something that our heart wants us to do because of remaining sin. And so therefore, we cannot, we cannot win that battle alone. We must, must depend on our high priest. Therefore, our high priest, Jesus Christ, knows all about sin without having sinned. And because he has passed through the heavens... Into God's presence, Jesus has broken down all the obstacles that could hinder a sinful human being from coming into God's perfect presence. And now, he invites us to come boldly to his throne. And this is where the practical meets the theological in this passage of Scripture. And it really leads me to a third reason why Jesus is able to help us. In verse number 16... It says, therefore, let us draw near, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. What is that? You know what that is? That's an invitation to pray. That's an invitation to come. This kind of confident approach to God's throne would have brought severe consequences to one approaching in the Old Testament remember all the warnings listen when when moses came down with the ten commandments god warned the people stay back keep the animals back too because you can't approach me i'm a holy god and you're a sinful people you can't approach me and so therefore all these warnings throughout scripture when the high priest went in to the holy of holies this elaborate ritual of purification to approach god and here here what the lord is doing is saying listen Approach me boldly. Approach me with confidence, actually. The word confidence or boldness, whatever it's translated in your, in your Bible, means freedom in speaking. Now, now that's incredible because the custom to freely speak before a king on a throne can have disastrous results. Right? Even in the Old Testament, Esther was a little bit nervous about coming before the king without going through the right procedures right was it esther i hope i'm with the right one she was a little nervous about that because she said the king could take my life if i if i you know i don't come the right way but here it's saying look at, look at the languages therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and we can speak freely there that that means this this shows that the throne of judgment has been changed to the throne of mercy why? Because the blood of Jesus has been sprinkled upon it, as even Hebrews 10:19. Look it over to Hebrews 10:19, uh, which we're going to be reminded of again l- later on. It says this: "Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So the free right to approach god with bold frankness was given in the sacrifice of christ this means believers have daily access to god for grace and assistance every day 24 hours a day seven days a week you don't have to go through a human priest you don't have to go through any rituals You don't even have to go through any purification rites. You just come to the Lord. Just the fact that you're coming shows something about some understanding you have about what He's done for you. All the formalities have been fulfilled, then removed in Christ, and all we need to do is come and receive continual help. Come to your high priest and call on the name of the Lord. Here's an invitation to come into the presence of the king and speak freely what's on your heart. That is an amazing invitation. You find that invitation nowhere. Except, actually this passage of scripture is a tremendous passage of scripture to show how much Christ loved us. And what he has done to the extent of what he's done on the cross now, you know, that this also means something, though. It means that we cannot be prayerless. Don't think that you can cope with life without divine help. So we must accept the invitation right here in Scripture and follow our Lord Jesus boldly into the holy place. One old theologian said this, P.T. Forsythe used to to insist that prayerlessness is the root of all sin. When we do not give time each day to earnest and believing prayer, we are saying that we can cope with life without divine aid. It is human arrogance at its worst. Jesus knew that he had to pray, and did so gladly, necessarily, And effectively, in fact, if you follow Jesus around in the New Testament, you'll find, what does he do? Matthew 14, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself, what? To pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Mark 1, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place a place, and was praying there. And then in Luke five sixteen, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. If Jesus has to pray, if Jesus shows an example of prayer, what about us, brethren? I think if there, we're tempted to do one thing more often than any other sin, is the sin of not praying. The sin of not accepting Christ's invitation. The sin of doing it on our own, using our own resources and not going to the Lord for help. And maybe it's because we don't even believe the Lord will help. So to be prayerless is to be guilty of the worst form of practical atheism. We are saying that we believe in God, but we can do without Him. But what it does is it makes us careless about our former sins and heedless to our immediate needs. That's what it does. See, the admonition then is to come into the presence of your compassionate high priest, Jesus Christ, who invites you to do so and understands everything you can possibly bring to him in prayer. And keep this in mind also. To neglect the place of prayer is to rob yourself yourself of immense and timely resources why would you want to rob yourself of those things maybe we're weak is because we are not praying like we ought to see for the christian the throne of grace is the place of help the place where our god who is a person can be moved So thank God we have a high priest who can hear our prayers, understand every one of them, and is compassionate and eager to hear us. What an an inestimable privilege it is to have the privilege of prayer, a privilege that we esteem all too lightly and take for granted of. And for some, even seldom use. So here's the greatest tool in our arsenal. and We don't use it. Why? We're we're tempted by the lust of our heart. We're tired. Our favorite program's on. Someone's going to visit us tonight. And so Satan uh, gives to you all the interruptions, good interruptions, with, with legitimate excuses why you shouldn't pray in the morning, you shouldn't pray in the afternoon, you shouldn't pray in the evening, you shouldn't meet with God's people to pray, and blah, 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 the list goes on and, on and on and on and on and on. And yet, we're robbing ourselves of the very thing God gives us to approach the throne of grace to receive what we need to receive. It was D. James Kennedy who says this, I wonder if God sometimes, when we pray, thinks that he has heard a mechanical voice talking to him as we go through our vain repetitions of the same prayers over and over again and have little thought and no heart in them at all, then we wonder why they are not answered, end quote, James Kennedy. Now, look back at our text for a minute. Chapter 4, chapter four of Hebrews, look at verse 16, the last part of verse 16. Why, Why should... Believer, what should believers expect when we come to the throne of grace? Well, we, ex- we should expect the promise of help and comfort. it says that Jesus, our great high priest, comes to us with an inclination to relieve us. Verse 16, it says so that we may receive mercy. And here, mercy is kindness. We receive mercy and find grace. That's the gracious acceptance of God to help in time of need. Now, do we believe this? Here we have two essential aspects of God's deep and continual love for His children. He's just saying to us, come, and listen, when you come, you will receive kindness from me and you will find gracious acceptance in my presence and I will help you in your time of need. That's what God promises us. From his own heart he gives us help and relief as necessary. Our high priest is intimately involved in our infirmities and weaknesses and wants to remove them he wants to remove them from us now i was thinking when i was looking at this passage should we ever be tempted to doubt god's love and care for us and fall for it anymore after a passage like this I, i i think not that the great lie And the great temptation of the devil is that God doesn't love you because you are weak and you are frail and you are prone to sin and you do wander off. And he'll beat us to death with that. But at the same time, the scripture is saying, come to me with all your weaknesses and needs and problems and I will give you necessary help. There's no tinge of judgment in this passage here. There's no tinge of being afraid to come to God. He's he's got his arms opened with kindness and, and acceptance. And who wouldn't want to go to someone like that? Well, see, God's already made provision for our failures so that his love continues constant in spite, of, in spite of what we do. It says in Scripture, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's Jesus Christ, the high priest sitting there interceding for us. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world, for all those who would come and believe in him. He is the answer. See, one reason why we doubt God's love is that we have an adversary who uses every little offense to accuse us of being good for nothing. your advocate, Jesus Christ, however, is more powerful than your adversary. He has canceled the debt of your past, present, and future sins. No matter what you do or how you fail, God will still love you. See, God's people need to hear that. Because the love of God is not dependent on its object. It is dependent on his character. And the Bible says God is love, period. Can't change that. Do you realize the awesome privilege we have? Now, that does not mean, that does not mean that God's going to approve of everything you do and let you go on doing it. That's why it's going to say in Hebrews chapter 12 that when you sin, he's going to discipline us for our good that you can share in his holiness. That he'll bring you back to the path of righteousness and you can share in that and enjoy it and live a good, happy, wholesome Christian life. Well, in uh, in my readings, I came across a story I thought I wanted to share with you that kind of illustrates... Uh, God loves you no matter what you do. And uh, it was an article from Neil T. Anderson, who was writing in a book called Victory Over Darkness, and he said that when his children were small, he had babysitters that came, and the babysitters kind of like uh, connected with the kids, so the babysitters gave the, the the boy and the girl hamsters. And one night, uh, he says, I came home from work, and my wife, Joanne, met me at the door. You better talk to Carl. That was his, his son, his young son. And uh, she said solemnly, uh, he said solemnly, what's the matter? I think Carl threw Johnny this afternoon. Johnny, of course, was the name of the hamster. And um, I went to Carl, Neil said, and, and asked him point blank, did you... Did you throw uh, Johnny, Carl? No, he answered firmly. Yes, he did. Heidi accused, as only a big sister could do, and argued back and forth, but Carl would not admit of throwing the hamster. Unfortunately for poor Carl, there was an eyewitness that afternoon that was Heidi's friend. And so, Carl, or Neil asked uh, Heidi's friend, did Carl indeed throw the hamster? And she said, yes. So now that I got two witnesses, he's in trouble. Again, I confronted Carl. Neil said, this time with one of those oversized plastic wiffle bats that make a lot of noise on a child's behind but inflicts very little damage. Carl throwing Johnny, uh, Carl said, uh, throwing Johnny is not the big deal, but you need to be honest with me. Did you throw Johnny? And, of course, his son Carl says, no, whack. Carl tells me the truth. Carl, tell me the truth. Did you throw Johnny? No, whack. No matter how much I threatened Carl, he wouldn't confess. I was frustrated and finally gave up. A couple of days later, Joanne met me at the door, his wife, You better go talk to Carl. What's wrong this time? Johnny's dead. I found Carl in the backyard mourning over his little hamster, which was stretched out on a small piece of cloth. And uh, we talked about death and dying together, and then buried Johnny and went to the pet store, and we bought uh, a new hamster. I thought the incident was over and ended the next day. Joanne me, meets me at the door again. Now what's the problem? my side? Carl dug up Johnny. I again found Carl in the back mourning over his stiff, dirt-encrusted hamster lying on a piece of cloth. So I made a, a little cross, and he, I said to my son, "Son, I think I, I think we, we didn't do. We didn't have a Christian funeral. So I made a little cross out of two sticks." And Carl and I talked about death and dying some more. Then he buried Johnny again and placed the cross on top of the little grave. Carl and I, uh, Carl, I, I think you need to pray now, Neil said. Uh, and Carl says, no, Dad, you pray. And um, Neil says, Carl, no, Johnny, that was your hamster. Johnny was your hamster. I think you need to pray. So the little boy bows his head and finally agreed and this was his prayer. Dear Jesus, help me not to throw my new hamster. Neil says, What I couldn't coax out of him with the plastic back, God, God worked out of his heart. Now, the question was why did Carl lie? Because he thought if he admitted throwing the pet, his father wouldn't love him. And he was willing to lie so he could hold on to his love and respect, which he feared more than lying to his father. So his father reached down and wrapped his arms around his little son and said, Carl, I want you to know something. No matter what you do, no matter what you do in life, I, I'm i always going to love you. You can be honest with me and tell me the truth, I may not approve of everything you do, but I'm always going to love you. And that's a small reflection of how God loves us. Even from a passage of Scripture like this, He says to us too, I want you to know something. No matter what you do in life, I'm always going to love my children. You can be honest with me and tell me the truth. I may not approve of everything you do, and I may discipline you for what you do, but I'm always going to love you because I understand you and I welcome you to come into my presence and I want to help you. Live your Christian life so you make it to the end and persevere by faith. See, that's the promise we have in this passage of Scripture, which to me is of great encouragement, and practical application. The thing is that we need now to apply it, right? We can say, wow, that was great. I I love that passage of Scripture. I'm going to memorize that, but that's not the point. The point is, let's do it. Let's actually do it. Let's actually go out on a limb and come to the Lord and tell Him impossible things. Ask Him to rescue you from Maybe a severe temptation that's been going on in your life. Rescue you from the sin that you've committed. And it's wrecking havoc in your family. Ask him to rescue you. If you are one of his children, you have the help that you need. If you are not one of his children, then the terror of God's words still stand. You're under God's judgment. Not under God's acceptance and grace and mercy. So... This morning, whatever it may be, today may be the day you come to Christ to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and his his death and resurrection on your behalf and become a believer. But if you are a believer, today is the day you're going to commit yourself to say, Lord, I am going to live this way. I am going to live this way. You're going to be my great high priest. And you're going to deliver me from temptations that I cannot do anything I can't deliver myself from or no one else can. Only you can. That you're going to help me in my problems and with my needs and with my weaknesses and whatever may befall me. Lord, you're going to help me with those things. And so, Lord, I come to you that way today. And you know what? We're going to find that God keeps his promises and that we should have testimonies and about what the Lord's doing in this area of our life. And give him the praise and give him worship because of what he's doing. Right? See, we are too easily satisfied when it comes to our, our spiritual life. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let, let's hold to these promises. And let's, let's make it to Hebrews chapter 11. The, the, the hall of faith. And see what those people endured. And they saw by faith and lived by faith, and died by faith, and now they live by sight. Amen? Let's make it there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your tremendous, tremendous grace to us. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us, for your gracious acceptance of us. Oh, Lord, help us to know and believe and practice these things. And, Lord, I pray that when we are tempted, to doubt your great love and care for us that we not go there. You would give us the strength to say, no, my Lord loves me and cares for me. My Lord is there for me. He's provided for all my needs and He hears my prayers and welcomes me to come into His throne room and He accepts me there. And I find grace there and I find help there. Lord, help us to think like that. And Lord, give us victory after victory After victory in Christ. So we can praise your name. So we can live by faith. So we can help others in their weaknesses. And in their, when their sins have gotten them down. And when they, Lord, have fallen on their face. And when Satan comes to them and tells them how worthless they are. That they can find, again, worth in Christ Jesus their Lord and Savior and their great high priest. Lord, we praise you and thank you for what you'll do this morning in the heart of your people. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.